Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. In the old days of advertising, disciplines like creative, PR, and experiential had distinct swim lanes. Not anymore. Now that brands can interact with consumers directly on social media and their experiences and work can be amplified organically online, creativity and brand work can come from anywhere. For We Are Social, which merged with sister agency The Narrative Group a year ago, the goal is to help brands tap into culture either online or through real-world experiences by prioritizing what U.S. CEO Rebecca Coleman calls earned-led creativity. In this episode, Coleman chats about the changing nature of social media and its inherent link to real-world experiences that build buzz online. She also shares her experience as a female founder in the male-dominated agency space. I'm your host, Allison Weisbra, Editor-in-Chief of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing well. How was your Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving was great. I went to Park City, Utah for the first time in my life. Oh, wow. How was it? I've never been. Do you ski? It was really beautiful. Very easy to get to from Los Angeles. My brother lives there and um, he just got a house there. And so we went to see him and it was so quaint and lovely and it snowed. And that was just like very exciting for a girl who lives in Los Angeles. (laughs) Like a kid at Christmas. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Well, excited to chat with you today. Um, It's been about a year since your company, The Narrative Group, merged with We Are Social, which is another agency. Then you took on the role of US CEO for We Are Social. So talk a little bit about that. I know it's been, talk about the past year, bringing the two companies together. Like what has that been like for you in leading that? Yeah. Well, we were both owned by the same small holding company that's based in Canada called Plus Company. And we found ourselves in rooms together quite a bit, not pitching against one another, but in rooms where um, we would be both presenting the kind of work we were doing. And we were seeing that the work was sort of uh, converging. And yet we were two different companies. And unlike other holding companies uh, who often have competitive agencies and have a philosophy that if they have more irons in a fire, they have a better chance of winning, at least one of those agencies would win. This agency calls itself a Propel Co., which is the opposite, where what we're trying to do is work together to win business and um, bring great ideas to market. And so... The global CEO of We Are Social approached me and asked if we would ever consider uh, merging in the U.S. so that we could take the each individual agency's strengths, put them together, and um, try to make an even bigger impact in the U.S. market. And so we started talking about that in the summer of last year, 2022. Um, and by around this time, we announced that we were going to be merging in January And on January 3rd, I took the helm as CEO of We Are Social with the narrative brand in tow. Um, But we really are one U.S. agency with uh, different specialties being offered. So basically the idea, and this was probably the hardest part of the merger, the idea was that 
um, we are social would sort of absorb all of the amazing um, social and creative uh, led work that we were doing and bringing to market. And the narrative brand would stay as a specialty in building buzz. And that's that earned led piece where we are really good at experiential uh, influencer and um, buzz building PR. So not like corporate comms, but more buzz building PR to support things mm. like experiential and influencer. And so the reason we made the decision to uh, keep the narrative brand is that if you've worked at an agency, you know, uh, when you pitch to a client, the most likely question is, this is all great, but what are you really good at? And um, they kind of want to know what the core of your skills are. And the name We Are Social is incredibly great at bringing in opportunities, but also can be very self-limiting when you go in a room as We Are Social and then say, but we're really good at this other thing called experiential. (laughs) It just feels like an add-on. So we wanted to keep the brand that actually at its core started as that. um, So that when we walked in rooms, we could say, you know, oh, we have a whole group of people. We had 60 people at Narrative. So we had a whole group of people that were devoting the majority of their time to this buzz building work. Um, and we didn't want to sacrifice that. And it's been a really great um, experience because of exactly what I'm describing. We went to some existing We Are Social clients and said, hey, we also offer this now. Can we show you what the narrative brand does? And vice versa, we went into existing narrative clients and said, We Are Social has an incredible history in this space, um, more depth, more research, more uh, strategy. Can we bring it in and show you? So it was. it's been a really good marriage. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the decision to keep the narrative brand. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that later. But um, talk a little bit about this, um, like how the two skill sets of the agencies complement each other. Like when you say buzz building PR and earned creative, talk about what that means. And then how does that fit into the social media capabilities that we are social brings? Yeah, I think a little bit of why we were starting to converge is, as I'm sure you remember, at the beginning of social, social was all earned. Um, That was the beauty of it. You opened a Twitter account, you had an Instagram, you had those Facebook tabs with the different things you could make them into. um, And it was all earned and every post that you put up, everyone saw. And then, you know, people started complaining about the algorithm. I'm not seeing people, I'm not seeing things that I used to, or if you were a brand, not as many people were seeing your posts. Um, so as, as it became more popular, it became a pay, pay for play medium. So you would talk to clients and say, oh, you know, you're going to have to boost this. You're going to have to put money behind it. And then, you know, the whole economy of social began. And so then what clients started doing is figuring that they wanted to understand how how could what was the next earned area of opportunity where could they you know make a splash make noise build word of mouth um, inside this space and so as an agency narrative was medium agnostic edit so we obviously during the pandemic could not be doing the kind of experiential work we had done before. So we took the principles of that work and applied them in the social space. And that's why we found our two agencies sort of converging because we were doing more and more work in the social space, um, really um, trying to find ways to get uh, talk value, to build brand voice, 
uh, to lean into what was happening in culture the same way that we had done in experiential. And so we, mm-hmm. our social saw that and was like, oh, hang on a second. Um, you guys brought a skill set to the social space that maybe um, would be beneficial in the U.S. market to us as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it, it's interesting how you sort of describe it as a uh, experiential and, you know, social media and creative. Would you consider it PR? Like, like how has the definition of like what creativity and PR is changed and how is sort of the new We Are Social is almost an example of that? Yeah, uh, it's so interesting. PR, I believe, in this kind of set of companies uh, is what has evolved and is evolving the most. If you look at any PR agency, you know, you used to really work hard to get press specifically. Um, And now PR is looking to all of these other mediums. Um, So I do think that PR agencies and agencies that play in the social space um, use similar tactics. If you look at PR agencies, many of them are doing kind of influencer work. Many of them are doing experiential type work. So I do think that this is a direction that PR is going in as well. I think what we're finding that's really interesting now that uh, experiential has woken back up and it took longer than way longer than we thought it would. So we tried the year after pandemic with our clients that had used us for it for many, many years. We planned things that never happened because there would be surges. Um, And then even after there weren't those surges or there wasn't fear of uh, as much fear, there just wasn't the commitment because it was sort of the engine hadn't started again. But in the last year, we have seen it come back to life. And what we've been extremely excited about is it's not exactly the same as it was before. What's amazing about it is just as we applied those sort of buzz building principles to the social space, the social space has sort of invaded the experiential space. And so Mm -hmm. now where before you, the whole idea of experiential was that you were having this Um, sort of more one-to-one brand experience uh, and consumer experience. And the impact of ROI was about, you know, those individual experiences, touching, feeling the brand, tasting it, um, coming away with word of mouth. Now, what we're doing in Experiential is trying to make it um, viral or um, kind of buzz buildy as you're at it, as you're doing it. What are the elements of this experiential activation that are going to show our ROI that goes beyond the people who are physically at the activation? And that's, uh, you know, a whole new um, set of uh, concepts that you bring to the table, it, you you execute it quite differently than you did before. Before you had maybe a booth where you could, you know, take pictures and hopefully people would send those out that were branded, uh, post them on the internet. Now, I mean, the entire thing is conceived around how is this impacting both the people right in front of us and also able to build buzz on a greater scale. Um, and and what's fascinating is um, we've even done kind of activations that are primarily in service of the social space. So not mm. e- even though they're physically on the ground activations that are big investments, they are primarily to for the reverberations that happen in social. 
And so those things are what's converging even more than the PR part. Um, and the element of PR that's there is, okay, we're, it's one of the reverberations, right? It's one of the buzz building tactics, but influencer plays a role and so does all of the choices you make in, in conceiving them. Yeah. It's really interesting how you mentioned like people, like brands are investing in experiences, like just to see the impact on social media or primarily to see that talk about, um, like uh, in this new kind of paradigm of experiential, like the role that influencers play, talk about that a little bit and how that dynamic is changing um, in terms of like how brands do experiences, what they want from influencers and, and how they play a role in that. Yeah, I think um, influencers are playing a really big role in kind of consumer activations. I think they play uh, a role in more than one way. Uh, for some of them, it helps get people to the activation. So influencers are a draw, especially in the post-pandemic world, because uh, people spent several years not at physical events, and then now they like to go and, and meet influencers or see be in the presence of influencers they love. So I think it helps attract people to events. It helps um, ensure an audience at those events. And then also... Um, Oftentimes when we're working with more um, high impact influencers, maybe people with bigger following or people with sort of an, that we would call creators that have um, sort of an artistic lens, they actually help us and sometimes co-create what the experience is going to be like. And that is a really fun aspect of what we're doing. Um, It's especially um, exciting when you're working with clients that uh, really partners with creators. So, you know, like YouTube is a client of ours, and that is a great space to be able to really understand what makes the creator's audience engaged and then to um, have them co-create this physical experience or help tell the story of it. Mm. So how do you, as you kind of see like this, you know, earned led creativity space growing? Like, how do you kind of see the the swim lanes changing between what a creative agency does, I guess? And like what, because I feel like in the past there were such specific, like this is PR, this is creative, this is experiential. Everything's sort of coming together now. How do you kind of see that playing out? Do agencies have to have all of these capabilities or do these have to be like front and center today? So I think the answer to that is it depends. And I think um, it depends what kind of brand you are and what you're trying to do in the space. For us, we try really hard to uh, suss out what a brand is trying to do and, um, and how comfortable they are in this kind of new version of creative before we take them on as a client. Uh, Because I think, you know, a traditional integrated agency is going to hit uh, all of the branch attributes, reasons to believe. Um, They're going to really make sure they talk about um, the marketing elements that have been around for the last, I don't know, decades And that's not really our style. Um, Our style is more um, how do we create um, brand love and talk value and um, integrate the brand into culture. So our uh, integrated approach is geared towards that. Um, And this is actually CPG is the place where I think we have um, 
the hardest time deciphering whether or not it's going to be a good fit because I think mm. CPG is very interested in experimenting in the space, but has a really hard time giving up uh, RTBs and they're talking about specific elements of products. Um, and some, I mean, there's always exceptions to that rule, but often what happens in um, when we're pitching We'll have a CPG come to us. They'll say, we love your work. We love that you're in culture. We love that you, you know, sort of build brand stories. We're very interested in it. And we'll say to them like, okay, but here's what we do. We, we, we don't take like really pretty pictures of your products and make sure that like all the shadows are right. Like what we do is figure out what are people saying in this space? What are the like little nuances um, what audience are we trying to reach? What do they care about? And then we try to figure out the connections and those connections may not have to do with how much sugar is in the product or not, um, or how creamy it is. It's, it is as much more about sort of how you can show up in culture. And then we will present back to them our pitch and they'll be like, we really liked it, but like, we're not ready. <laughs> and, um, it happens more times than, than, you can imagine. And so I think um, in terms of like where agencies going, I think there's still plenty of space um, for agencies that, mm-hmm. that are doing those more kind of vertical focuses or uh, traditional routes. I think there's plenty of brands that are doing that, that approach in an evolved way. I'm not saying those brands are ancient. They're doing it in an evolved way. It's just, it's just a different uh, execution than um, what we're doing that, uh, the kinds of brands that, you know, come to us and the kinds of executions they're willing to try. Yeah. It's interesting that you say like, you know, the CPG brands, they, they love it, but they're not ready. Like how often do you run into that in pitches and which verticals are a little more adventurous than others, I guess? I mean, tech is amazing at really understanding, um, how, content is evolving, consumers are evolving. So um, that's a really great space for us. I would say um, uh, beverage in the CPG category is a little bit, as we've all known, like, you know, the Cokes and Pepsis of the world have always done it. And then all the new new mover brands um, are interested in it. I mean, uh, not a client, but look at Liquid Death. I mean, look at the rise mm-hmm. of that brand. That's a, a, an example of it, the CPG space, like being totally off the rails and um, succeeding. And that that's more of uh, the kind of work we do um, for sure. I mean, our biggest client is McDonald's and um, they're incredible about trying things and um, very focused on understanding what's happening in culture and um, bringing in new generations and new audiences. Um, so there are a lot of, of brands in the space. I have to tell you, one of the biggest surprises to me, both in terms of employees wanting to work on the work and brands um, that are willing to try different things is in the healthcare space. Um, oh. Isn't that shocking? Um, so (laughs) I know it's so exciting. So, um, we have a brand called, um, CCRM fertility. It's a nationwide fertility clinic. Um, and 
first of all, um, sometimes when you're when you've built an agency on on culture and being in the zeitgeist, and then you bring in a healthcare client, employees are like, "Wait, what? This isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> I don't I don't work at a healthcare agency." But our employees were super fascinated, very into learning about the fertility space. I mean, we have a lot of people in the target age um, group, both men and women, um, really wanted to understand how it works. We're very interested in the process. Um, also, as you might imagine, the audience mindset in it is so varied, right? You have same-sex couples who are starting the process and very excited about it. You have other couples who it's their last resort. They've tried everything else. They're frustrated. They're upset. This mm-hmm. this um, fertility clinic happens to have extremely great outcomes, so it is often a last resort. You know, people are going there um, and, and, and trying it their final time. And what I think is so interesting is that they have been willing to kind of look at what's going on, um, uh, take the time to understand in social listening, what are the conversations that people are having? What are the struggles? Who is excited? Who is going into this excited? What's their mindset? What happens when someone is frustrated? What kind of messages do they want to receive? How are they talking? And um, it's been incredible to be able to apply this kind of thinking to an industry like that and to have a client Mm -hmm. in an industry like that that is willing um, to take risks and to try things and to talk about things in a way that is um, unexpected. And um, we just did a podcast for them in partnership with CCRM and Dear Media and Whitney Port. Um, where she's the host um, and talks to all kinds of doctors and people who have been through the process and just the, the, the openness to doing something like that, that isn't, you know, like I said, straight advertising, straight driving leads Mm -hmm. um, was uh, very refreshing and just shows that even in the most traditional spaces, there is opportunity. Yeah, no, that's super interesting to hear a healthcare client um, jumping in like that. So obviously like, Brands want to be on at the center of culture, right? And that's where all of this like social listening, jumping in on the conversation is so important these days. But then there's also the risk of jumping in on something that you that could could bring backlash, right? And like doesn't necessarily resonate with the audience. How do you help your clients in those situations? Like, how do you advise them to weigh the options of of joining a conversation or not joining a conversation? So I think that in terms of uh, social media specifically, we we have changed, you know, there was this term like social media managers or community managers. And I know that it sounds like, I don't know, semantics or whatever, but we have changed the name of those roles to uh, engagement, community engagement and community engagement managers because Really part of the way that we make sure that we understand um, what's going to resonate and kind of the language that we should be using is being in it every single day. So, right, we used to basically think of community management almost like a form of customer service, right? Oh, people are leaving us messages. We should reply to them. But we didn't really think Mm -hmm. of it as a way to establish brand voice, to understand what is appropriate in the conversation and what isn't, to know how the tides are changing, um, to have a, a, a moment of pause 
when you're seeing something bubble up and you can telebrand that, that is how we're using it now. And those changes have really helped us know what to, uh, you know, raise as flags, both when we're concepting things and also when we are in, in market. And that obviously social listening plays a role, but there's nothing that can quite replace being actually in the community and being a part of the conversation uh, as a brand. And that can sound a little creepy, right? Oh, a brand's going to show up in all these places, but it's actually the brand establishing itself um, as a part of the community, um, being empathetic, uh, being in the conversation regularly that makes it not feel as wild when a brand has a response or a concept that isn't as well received as we hope. Um, if you have mm-hmm. kind of a track record, if you've been a part of a community, the community will be supportive of it. It's interesting because brands need to be doing this more, but then there's Mm -hmm. also like more fraught conversations happening Mm -hmm. online. Like, do you find that brands are more risk averse now in, in jumping into these conversations? I'd say in the last year, I've seen a major shift in what consumer expectations of brands um, are currently. So we had several years of consumers wanting brands to comment on everything. Consumers wanted brands to weigh in on everything. And if they weren't, they were like, Mm -hmm. why aren't you weighing in on this thing? Um, I think that there has been a shift and it's continue, obviously it's continuing to evolve, but um, consumers kind of don't want to hear on from brands on everything anymore. It's, I think it uh, perhaps became too much, perhaps, became too political. And so it has provided some relief, to be honest. And I think part of the reason that consumers don't want to hear from brands on everything is because they felt like brands were just like checking boxes, right? Um, I need to comment on this. I need to make sure we represent this thing and this thing. And then it didn't, it felt inauthentic. Um, so it was just getting you in a lot of hot water. Um, that's not, not to say um, that consumers don't think brands should be responsible, but there seems to have been a shift where they're more interested in brands weighing in in their spaces. And so many brands have things that they, areas that they support, and that feels more authentic to consumers. So that's been really helpful. So you think it's been sort of more consumer driven than brand driven in terms of like, actually, we don't want to comment on everything anymore. So I think there is, um, okay, there's two parts to this. When I say consumers seem to feel less like they want to hear from brands on everything, what I mean is like your official, your brand has made a content calendar that could fill up every day of the year with some, it's an officially this day or that Got day it. or supporting this thing or that thing. We spent a lot of years doing that. We spent a lot of years doing social calendars that had to look at every potential thing, holidays, uh, those made up days, like National Pretzel Day, whatever, like that we spent a lot of yeah. years trying doing calendars, trying to figure that out. What I'm saying is that consumers are not interested in that being their relationship with a brand. That's, that's not their expectations right. to have them comment on everything. Um, in terms of like 
oh, replying to their community, um, being a sort of authentic in the space that a brand it's appropriate for a brand to live in. Um, I think that that still is uh, very valuable. Mm. Okay. One thing that has changed a lot in the social media landscape is Twitter now mm-hmm. X. Mm-hmm. Have you know what 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 have you noticed from your clients in terms of like their behavior on that platform in the past few months? Um, we get a lot of please don't post today um, mm. on that platform. Um, it's a tough one. It's a really tough one because um, each. Obviously, each platform sort of serves a different purpose, and um, and there's a, like an immediacy to Twitter, and um, sort of a new it's you know newsfeed aspect in a way that many of these other um, platforms don't have anymore. I mean, back in the day, people did that on on Facebook, but they don't really anymore. Um, so I think it is very volatile. And um, mm. brands are paying attention to the volatility. We're paying attention to the volatility. Um, and we are trying to uh, adjust um, on a daily basis. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, we are we are often asked to pause uh, posting on that platform because of the volatility and uh, kind of unpredictable nature of where a brand will show up. It's a bummer because I think it was a great platform. It was a great platform. It was a great platform. But mm-hmm. so it's more like day to day rather than like we're going off of it completely. We do not have any clients who have like made statements where they're done forever or yeah. let's, let's yeah. not have that be a platform that we're playing on. We're... um I think we're just much more careful um, about what we recommend on it and um, always paying attention and, you know, flagging, um, unfortunately. What about threads? Is there potential there for a competitor, a replacement? Um, we're definitely seeing, so it, 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 it had a, you know, very, a lot of excitement in the beginning, uh, a ton of people signing up in a very short period of time, brands knowing that historically first mover advantages um, have been very helpful. Um, you know, the brands that were early on TikTok have amassed really big audiences, the brands that were big early on Twitter and Instagram across the board. So I think a lot of brands were like, yep, we should be on this space. We um, know how it works. It's didn't necessarily require a whole new set of creative yet. Uh, it does offer some things that it, Twitter doesn't. Um, we have seen an uptick in the last couple of weeks. The question is, is the uptick related to what's going on over at X? Or mm-hmm. is the uptick because the algorithm that has been created in your Instagram feed is showing you threads? And mm. that integration may be driving people to kind of be more active on threads because you don't have to go to a separate app to kind of consume it. And people are still on Instagram. Um, so I think there's some potential there. Um, it's hard to know, like it's hard to crystal ball that one because it's like every time something like volatile happens on 
Twitter X. It's hard not to call it Twitter. Um, every time something <laughs> happens there, we get like somewhere else, there's a boost. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the staying, Those- how, how many times does it happen before people go somewhere else? Right, right. It's not clear if it's like permanent or just reactionary. I do Um, have to say that um, the current, um, the current controversy on Twitter um, or X uh, about kind of these fringe groups and um, kind of how inflammatory it is seems to be not as... uh, prevalent on uh, threads. And so it feels like a safer space. Um, And that is always going to be something that brands are seeking out. Right. Just depends on who's who's using it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So before we wrap up, I want to just ask you about your career because you are a two time entrepreneur um, in the in the advertising world. And you know, that's not, there's, there aren't a lot of women who can say that. So talk a little bit about your experience, like starting companies in the space. What was it like for you, especially, you know, as a female in the industry and how did you kind of navigate getting to where you are? My twenties were very difficult. Um, I am happy that things have evolved in the space. I joined an agency in my early twenties and worked my way up to president of that agency. I was I wanted to work in advertising starting at the age of 12 when most people want to do much more (laughs) exciting things. I I really was super into um, Coca-Cola and the Coca-Cola brand and the ads. And I, that's what I wanted to do. And um, I think uh, succeeding early as a young female was a a very extremely challenging um, experience um, not only were the, the, was the sea level dominated by men, um, but it was just also a time when, um, you know, um, sexual harassment was still totally rampant. Um, and that mm-hmm. I spent a lot of my twenties, um, experiencing that. Um, and I, uh, was just so passionate about the industry that I, you know, stuck with it and kept going, um, despite having a lot of, uh, challenging experiences in the space, um, with people who, uh, worked, uh, alongside me with clients, with people who worked for me, they reported to me. Um, so that's how I spent my twenties is, um, kind of working my way up to be president of this agency that was called, uh, uh back then they were called interactive advertising agencies. Um, that word has kind of gone by the wayside. And then we sold that agency to a larger agency and I became the GM. Um, there were 11 offices. Um, it was the largest independent interactive agency in the U S at the time. Um, and that was a really good experience. And actually, um, having that kind of experience has been helpful in this merger just because I, I had been through a merger, um, and, and, in a place with scale. Um, so I had that experience myself. And then after my earnout, I left as many people do, um, when they get purchased. And then I started my own agency, um, co-founded my own agency. And I had that agency, uh, for 11 years. And, um, that experience uh, happened to coincide with the rise of social media, 
Um, so we started in 2009. So the timing was really good for the beginning of social and um, doing a lot of experimentation um, and just being able to be really scrappy and really knowledgeable in an area that other people weren't. So it provided an opportunity for me to have had big agency experience but uh, kind of a specific expertise that enabled me to get into lots of rooms and kind of be rogue and not a part of the sort of bigger advertising system that, as you know, um, is still continues to be at the top dominated by um, men. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, it, it was not without its challenges, but the reason that I came to narrative uh, is because I met one of the founders of Narrative at a um, at a women's entrepreneur group for women who have founded companies. She was running a PR agency. I was running a creative agency. And um, I decided for what I call my third act, um, I decided for my third act, I wanted to be in a women-led environment. Um, I'd never been in that kind of environment before. Um, and I wanted to be in that kind of environment. And so we joined forces and, um, it has been an incredible experience for me. Um, and the thing that I think is most fascinating, and I give credit to the women who started narrative as individuals, but I also want to just say, um, that, what I find so fascinating about it is that they really wanted me to succeed in the role as president of their brand. Um, and usually when you have entrepreneurs, often when you have entrepreneurs, they want a president or a CEO, but like they have a really hard time getting out of the way. Um, but um, there was just, again, I don't know if it's them as individuals or us all being women or a combination of the two, but they really, really wanted me to succeed. And they were very supportive where I needed the support and they totally got out of my way and gave me, um, you know, full authority to make decisions when they thought that I, um, needed that, that freedom. And that is why we, when we combined, we doubled the company in a year and then almost tripled it the following year and now are a part of We Are Social because um, our success was so clear to the rest of the agencies and they you know, wanted to be a part of what we were building and, and, and take advantage of the momentum we had. And we've had another unprecedented growth year this year. So we're three years running of um, women-led success. Awesome. Love to hear that. Well, Mm -hmm. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. Hopefully we can talk soon. Keep on killing it. It was great to be here. Thank you for having me. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening to Campaign Chemistry. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head to campaignlive.com for all the latest news on advertising and marketing. 